Yeah. Um, so, um, I was born, I mean, I know you said five to seven minutes, Pastor Jay, but yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, so I was born to a Jewish family. Um, both parents are Jewish. So I am in fact Jewish. Um, that, that will not change just because I am a follower of Christ, but, um, I just wanted to put that out there, get a lot of questions about it. Anyway, um, I grew up, my dad got saved in the late 80s, and um, in my immediate family, my dad, my mom, and me are the only believers, Um, but my dad got saved in the late 80s. My mom got saved soon after I was born in 1992, and I pretty much grew, yeah, uh, 90s babies. Um, and uh, I got saved when I was probably about five or six. Like, grew up in a Christian home. Um, my, I didn't really do anything bad. Like, I was a good kid. Um, all throughout high school, went to church, you know, Sunday school. Got baptized when I was 12. Um, but then college hit. And I remember telling my parents, like, oh, yeah, I'll never drink, I'll never smoke, I'll never do drugs, I'll never, you know, all the things that they warned me against, I said that I would never do. But as soon as they dropped me off, um, my dorm mates immediately started, going, started looking for it. Um, and that started a very dark part of, uh, of my life. Um, so I was 18 years old, had my first drink, smoked my first joint, cigarette, like pretty much everything under the sun. Um, and I know people look at me and are like, you never, but yes. That just goes to show that the Lord works it. He works, you know, when we give that over to him. Um, but during that time, Like, my studies, I did not care. I only cared about partying. I only cared about, like, the social aspect of college. Um, And I had tricked myself into believing that, like, I was being a good influence because I was a Christian. I knew Christian things, and yet I was being influenced more more by the people who were around me than I was having on them. Um, and it's so easy to get caught up in that. Um, and then, and even in that, the Lord, you, the Lord, like opened up, uh, like I, ironically enough, got plugged into a Christian club on campus because my mom wanted me to. And that's when I started playing guitar. So I started like playing guitar, growing in that gift. And then um, there were opportunities to lead worship. Now, I was, I was leading worship, but I wasn't living a way that a leader in a Christian community should. Like, I had one foot in the world. I had one foot in church or in Christian community. Um, but the Lord let me go. He let me do what I wanted to do, and 
more opportunities opened up. I took them out of selfish ambition um, because I wanted to show people how great I was, how good I was, like how skilled I was. Um, like there came an opportunity for, there was a church camp, a church plant that was started on our campus. And so a friend of mine who was a mentor in, for me in guitar, he recommended me because he was like, oh, Pete could play guitar. He could kind of sing. And, um, and so he was like, would, this, would you be interested? I was like, absolutely. Because I want, again, I wanted to show off how hard I worked and what I was doing. And I wanted to feel like what I was doing mattered. Um, so again, the Lord lets us do what we want to do for a season, right? Like he allows us to go, you know, but he disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those who are called his. So the Lord let me do that. I was doing worship for them. It started in November 2015. I know I'm old, um, but it started in November of 2015. I'm sorry, Rob. Um, but it started in November of 2015, uh, 2014, sorry, 2014. And then at the end of spring semester, I remember walking into the church, church, uh, the church plant ready to do soundtrack for worship, and they had someone else up there. And the pastor of the church plant, he pulled me aside, and he was like, hey, listen, we've been noticing inconsistencies with your walk. Um, like I would, I would literally go out drinking Saturday night and come hungover to worship practice Sunday morning. Like it was bad. Um, but he was like, we've noticed some inconsistencies in your walk. Like we're going to have to ask you to step down. And it was the most loving thing that someone in the church could do, even though it hurt in the moment. Right, but if we see a brother or a sister struggling, we're called to call them out in love, and if they repent, to accept them back. But of course, me being the stubborn college student that I was, I my pride was shattered. I ran out, didn't go back there for the rest of the the year. Summer came around. The Lord did work in my heart. Like, he opened my eyes to what I was doing. And I got an opportunity to come back to play bass. Now, I, I do play bass, but I have, at that point, I had only been playing for less than a year, so I wasn't as gifted as guitar. But uh, that friend of mine, John, he started leading worship there, and he was like, hey, I want you to play bass. And I was like, are you sure? He was like, yeah, I talked to the pastor. He's okay with it. I know that the Lord's been doing a work in you. And that was the most revealing thing of what a true Christian community is, right? Like we notice that the Lord is doing a work in someone. And he brings us to a place where we know that it's not in and of ourselves anymore. It's not about what we can do, right? 
like we've all heard the saying, he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called, right? Just because someone is skilled in a certain gifting, the Lord may use that person, he may use someone else. Um, and, you know, the Lord really brought me back to himself. And then, so fast forward a little bit, I graduated college somehow. Um, grace. grace, that's it. Um, and he, and I moved in, or my dad asked me if I wanted to move with him in Jersey. I was like, well, I was like, sure. Like, didn't pray about it, didn't do anything. And originally I'm from New York, but my dad was like, hey, move in with me and my wife in Jersey. And I was like, I'll go with you, but only if I, we start going to church. Only if we start going to a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And, I mean, there's a lot more to this, but I am over time. Um, but if you guys want me to explain things further feel free to ask, but, you know, I mean, it just goes to show that when we wholeheartedly give ourselves, our ambitions, our everything to the Lord, we can't even begin to understand how much he uses us. Like, he wants people who are willing. He wants people who are obedient and yeah, uh, he's, it's all him. It's all him. So yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Pete thinks he's old. I graduated. I graduated high school when Pete was two, so do the math. I'm not that old. Who whistled? Oh, the world's full of jokers. Well, why don't we pray real quick before we get into tonight's word and our message. Father God, Lord, in the name of Jesus, the name which is above every name, the name at which every knee shall bow and tongue confess to the glory of God, that Jesus is Lord. We talk about a heavy topic tonight, Lord. We talk about the sinless nature of Messiah Jesus, your only begotten son. And so, Lord, help us to digest this. Help me to teach it in a way that it communicates well, Lord. Something that we can hold on to because it's such an essential doctrine of our faith. We love you, Lord, and it's really simple. It's because you have loved us first. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all of God's family said, amen. amen. So we're going to talk about the sinless nature of Jesus tonight. We're going to follow our normal format. We'll look at the biblical basis for this doctrine. We're going to look at the creedal statements. You're going to think that we're all Presbyterians for five minutes. But I, I've tried to tell a lot of evangelical believers, there's nothing wrong with the early creeds of the Christian church, the apostolic creed, the Nicene, the Chalcedonian creed. I always challenge people, show me the heresy in the creed and I'll show you where you're probably misreading a creed. Their creedal statements are good. Does anyone know what creed means in Latin? Or should I say credo? 
Does anyone know what it means? It's how they all start. I believe. They're belief statements. They're statements about our faith. I believe. We'll look at the doctrinal importance, the moral importance, and some objections to consider. The biblical basis is, for me, the most important thing when we talk about the sinless nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're going to continue to go through these different doctrines. And if you haven't kind of figured it out yet, they kind of all very succinctly go in order, one building upon another, upon another, upon another. And that's kind of the whole point of studying in this fashion. But, you know, people will always say, you know, what's so special about Jesus of Nazareth? What's so special about your Jesus? And I can tell you that there's no one like Jesus. There is no one on this earth who has ever walked or shall again who is like Christ because all of the rest of us, and I mean Adam and Eve after the fall, are tainted by what we call a sin nature. All right? A nature is that which in the Greek pertains to everything that makes you distinctly who you are. What is it to be human? Uh, to be human means that you had two parents. I hate to tell you that's the way it goes. To be human means that you are created in the image of God, something that can be said of nothing else on this entire planet. That's the amazing things about human beings. If we have termites crawling up our foundation, we call an exterminator because they're expendable. They're termites. They're not created in the image of God. But for us to see a human being slaughtered or killed is reprehensible because we bear the imago Dei, the very image of God. Now, what's amazing is Jesus has no sin nature. And this is where everyone wants to get into this big sticky point. And they say, well, then, what's your next point? Jesus isn't really human. Well, think about it for a second, because I can show you how fun theology and Bible doctrine is. Did Adam and his wife Eve have a sin nature? Man, if someone says no, I'll smack you. Not before the fall, they did not have a sin nature. They were innocent. What did they eat off of? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you have no knowledge of good or evil, you would be like a small child. You would be not knowing the difference between good or evil. You'd be in a state of innocence. That's the state that Adam and Eve were created in in the state of innocence. It's only through their own sinful actions of being deceived and following through and eating off of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they fell. Now that they fell, their nature is corrupted, which means that following the principle of Genesis, like begetting like, sinners give birth to sinners. You nailed it. Dogs give birth to dogs. Cat gives birth to cat. Birds give birth to birds once their little eggs hatch in the spring and sinners give birth to sinners that means in every one of us there is an innate bending to sin that's why in pastoral ministry when people in the church of christ sin i'm going to tell you i for one don't bug out about it because it's in our nature we're bent towards it we have to work very hard or rely very hard on the Lord Jesus Christ and cast our cares upon him who cares for us to not sin. 
Think about how God described sin to Cain. He said, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you, but you must master it. Anyone here ever a big fan of Nat Geo? Is Nat Geo even still on TV? How old am I? I think it is. I'm pretty sure I watched it like a year ago. You ever watch a lion out on the Serengeti plain? You know, it's, it's usually like someone who's British, you know, and the cheetahs on the outside of the grassy rim. The gazelle has no idea whatsoever that the lioness is closely stalking him. You know, you're like, oh, this is going so bad for this gazelle. He is so dead. Look, it's like leaping gazelle, leaping gazelle, and then there's like Gary, the gimpy gazelle with one short leg. And everyone knows what happens in nature, right? There's just some quality control issues going on. You know, like the cheetah doesn't jump out of the grass and be like, yo, I'm, yo, Gary, I'm here, bro. Once you know you're going to be on the inside soon, I'm going to eat you. Cheetahs, lions, all big cats. They don't do that. They use stealth. They get down low, they creep. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Sin is the exact same way. It's deeply crouching at our door and its desire is to have us. And that's why when you go to a church and you find pastors who don't talk about sin, death, hell, or forgiveness, do yourself a favor. Get up politely, wave at the door, and go. Because those pastors aren't doing you or your walk with Jesus Christ a lick of good. We need to hear our nature, who we are, what we have been to. Because you could talk about the good news of the gospel, but here's the best part. If you don't talk about the bad news, what is the good news any good for? You need to know the bad side of the news. You know what the bad side of the news is? We're all beat. That's the bad news. Born with a nature that leads us into sinful actions on a pretty regular basis, glory be to God that Jesus doesn't have a sin nature. He is God Almighty in the flesh. For Jesus forever wed his deity to humanity in the person of Christ and died for us. And when you look at the people who knew Jesus best, they said these kind of things about him. 1 Peter 1.19, Christ is a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When Jesus opened his mouth, nothing corrupt, nothing deceitful, nothing arrogant ever left it. Ever. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. How can Peter say this? Peter left a lucrative fishing business and followed Jesus for some three and a half years. And, in, and innately gained a knowledge of who Jesus was. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I tell people, that is the Apostle Paul's most succinct verse on the gospel because that is the truth and hits hard at what the gospel is. Jesus, who is perfect, who knew no sin, hung on a cross for rebels 
and sinners like us. He stood in the gap, just like Pete said before, and he was spot on. He paid a debt he didn't owe because we had, we had a debt we couldn't pay. And he paid it for us. Jesus, speaking of himself, speaking to Pharisees in John 8, 46, says, which of you convicts me of sin? I mean, you know they made reference to Jesus being a bastard. Talking about questionable birth, like, well, at least we know about our parentages. I mean, your mom had some kind of amazing experience, right? Oh, yeah, virgin born. You know, if the Pharisees had enough common sense in their pinky finger to open up the scroll of Genesis, they would find that Genesis 3.15 says clear as day, it's the seed of woman. All right, that's an important verse. You don't need a biology degree to understand that there is no seed in women. There are eggs in women. Seed is in a man. The seed of the woman is absolutely positively, in Genesis 3.15, the first hint at a virgin conception. We say virgin birth all the time, but it's a dumb word. Jesus had a normal birth like every other baby on the planet. All right? We'll ask Mary one day, hey, did you just, did you just pop out in like two seconds? I was like, you know, you're telling me, I watched my wife squeeze two babies into this planet, man. There was screaming and yelling and, you know, whoo, it was a party in that room. Me, her, two doctors, and a nurse. Wild stuff. Jesus had a normal birth. You know what it means? He was human. That's a good thing. She went nine months with him and carried him. His conception is the miracle. No human father, which means no bloodline curse from Adam. It's still a full-blown miracle, trust me. Okay? It's just one way to subvert the human element of sinfulness. John says in 1 John 2.29, he is righteous, and he follows it up just a couple verses later in John 3.3. He is pure. These are people who knew Jesus best, who could say these things about him. What about his enemies and others? All right, now look, sure enough, it's great when your friends speak well of you. But what do your enemies and outsiders have to say? Judas, who walked with Jesus for three solid years after he sells Jesus out for 30 stinking silver coins, says, I have sinned by betraying. Notice these words, brothers and sisters, because it's very important. Innocent blood. You know, Judas did what he did because he was motivated by greed. If you didn't know this about Judas, Jesus actually let him be the treasurer of the disciples, which is pretty mind-boggling, in my opinion. Because when the woman breaks the alabaster flask full of costly spikenard, which was worth one year's salary, can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone busting a $60,000 bottle of Chanel number no. five and like rubbing it all over your feet? Yeah, you got to bring things into a cultural context. You're like, no, that, that's exactly what she did. She took something that was one year salary and she anointed Jesus' feet. And then Judas falsely says, oh my goodness. I mean, look, look at this. What a stinking waste here. We could have sold this perfume and fed the poor. No. 
what Judas wanted to do is the same thing dishonest bartenders do. He wanted to skim right off the top because he had the money bag. He wanted to sell the spike nard. Maybe some money would have went to ministry, but a lot would have went in his pocket. Being motivated by greed, even Judas in all of his sinfulness can say, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. How about the one who could have pardoned Jesus? How about Pontius Pilate? He says to the Jews in Matthew 27, 24, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Amazingly, a couple verses before that, it's his own wife who warned him and gave him some of the best counsel we have recorded. Have nothing to do with that just person. This is Jesus's rep in the streets of Israel that he was a just and pure person. One of the centurions said in Luke 23, 47, certainly this was a righteous man. Pretty amazing thing for a pagan Roman to say. We don't know if it's the same centurion or another. There would have been several at every public execution. In Matthew 27, 54, another centurion says, truly this was the son of God. Or in that pagan language would have been translated as a son of the gods. Very ambiguous in the Greek. It's hard to nail down what it is. But amazingly, that centurion saw something in Jesus, and I can tell you, it was his purity. That's what he saw. One of the thieves on the cross, after first mocking Jesus, later said to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you remember Jesus' amazing, gracious words? I tell you today, you will be with me in paradisios, in paradise, today. I know a lot of people get hung up on the thief on the cross. That man had genuine, saving, biblical faith. Because at first, if you read your gospel accounts, you'll see that both of the criminals on the cross mock Jesus. And then one sees and observes Jesus. Dying men didn't act the way Jesus acted. When the Herodians came to him, they said, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the ways of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Do you know what's amazing about Jesus in Matthew twenty-two sixteen? 16? He didn't favor anybody. If rich people came by, he didn't act a different way. If poor beggars, if people who had leprosy, he didn't regard people in the fact that he didn't show any favoritism. And the servants of Herod, they recognize that about Christ. What else? How about some of the accusations against him? The Romans said, he claimed to be king of the Jews. John 19, 19, but here's the truth of the matter. Um, he was. He was and still perpetually remains Messiah. He is the king of the Jews. There's nothing wrong with that accusation. How about the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 24? This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. This he got from healing a demon-possessed man who was mute and blind. Could you imagine that? You heal a guy who's demon-possessed, and then what do all the jokers of the day claim? 
you cast out demons because you're the Lord of the demons. Dude, the, the logic is flawless. So good. One of the passerbys at the cross said, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, which he did in his resurrection. If you go back and read John's account, when everyone started losing their minds when Jesus said that, John footnotes and clearly says in his gospel, and this he spoke about his body. Because think about theology for a second. What is the temple? The temple is where the Shekinah glory of God visibly manifested and came and dwelt and people came to meet with God. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is 10,000 times a better temple than the one built with human hands. He's a greater than the temple. And he was trying to get these people to understand that. How about the high priest in the Sanhedrin? You've heard the blasphemy that he claimed to be the Christ, the son of God. What do you think? And they all condemned him worthy of death. But think about it. How many times throughout the gospel accounts did Jesus prove to be the son of God? Over and over and over again. When a bunch of friends broke Peter's roof and lowered down their paralytic friend on a mat, Jesus walked by graciously and said something that no one else on earth could say. He leaned down and said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And he walked off and Pharisees started bugging. They're like, oh, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus spun around and said, so that you know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto you, pick up your bed and go home. And the man miraculously stood up and was able to carry his bed, which he had been living on, and take that bed home. And still they did not believe. How about a crowd who said at the crucifixion, we found this man subverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes, saying that he himself is a king. But hang on a second, guys. Didn't Jesus pay taxes? He sure did. He sends Peter to go fishing, and when he goes and catches a fish, he tells him flat out, first fish you find, open up its mouth. He opened it, and what was inside? The temple tax. You think Rome didn't get their cut of the temple tax? Rome got their cut of everything. What about the character and nature of Christ? How about, number one, that he taught and lived the highest ethic of the Sermon on the Mount, which includes all of these things. Do unto others as you know it, as you would have them do unto you. That means the way you want to be treated. Now think about it. Unless you're some narcissistic, psychopathic maniac, and I'm not calling anyone out, most people I have run into want to be treated with bare bones. Grace, love, mercy, forgiveness, kindness. I could keep going on with all the virtues and none of the vices, but I won't. Well, then, brothers and sisters, if you want to be treated as such, Jesus said that that's how you should treat people. Sometimes in our perverted minds, we, we turn it around and it's, 
we treat people how they treat us. That's not what Jesus said. He said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You want to hear my short Jersey paraphrase? Brothers and sisters in Christ, be the example. Do it first. Do not judge others. That's something we all love in this culture we live in. Love your enemies. Do not retaliate. Do not be a hypocrite. Do not lust in your hearts. Be merciful. Always keep your word. Help the poor. Forgive others. And do not make money your God. I went through them at breakneck speed because we could spend an hour just talking about a couple of them. This is the moral ethic Jesus lived. Furthermore, what about the fact that Jesus loved children and mothers stood in line to have Jesus bless their little ones and sit upon his lap in Mark 10, 13 through 14. In a society that, let me remind you a little bit how children were regarded 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Slightly better than your cattle and sheep. I don't like that. I'm telling you the facts. Very often, children were seen as burdensome in the ancient Middle Eastern society. Ah, oh, more kids, more mouths to feed. Ah! That wasn't how Jesus saw children at all. And when his disciples got square backwards and said, leave the rabbi alone, he turned around and rebuked his own disciples and said, stop. Do not forbid the little children to come to me. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wept over the death of a friend in John eleven thirty five. Lazarus. Stands at that tomb. It's the shortest verse in all of holy writ. Shortest verse in the Bible. Two words, full sentence, complete action. Jesus wept. You ever been at a funeral and been completely and absolutely emotionally in control? And one person says one thing and a wave of emotion sweeps over you? You ever had that happen or am I the only weirdo who that's happened to? Okay. Welcome to being human. That's human. It's called compassion. He set the example of servanthood by washing his own disciples' feet when in all honesty, someone should have done it before the meal ever started. At the end of the meal, Jesus takes off his one-piece rabbinic robe, the costliest thing he, earned, like he probably owned on planet Earth, wrapped a towel around his waist and went around and washed all of his disciples' feet. Furthermore, he lived the life of poverty Go read Matthew 18, 20. Jesus was not wealthy, all right? He was poor. He healed the ear of one of the mob who came to crucify him, Malchus, the high priest's servant. You know, they come to get him and Peter whips out his sword and lops off Malchus's ear. And you've got the famous statement where Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away because he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Some 2,000 years, and people are still saying that today. You want to know why? Because Jesus was right. And then he bends down, probably picks Malchus's ear up out of the dirt, gives it a little rub, slaps it on the side of his head again. Can you imagine being Malchus? I hear preachers always talk about, and the Lord Jesus healed Malchus's ear. Could you imagine being Malchus? You're sitting there holding your head one second. Your ear's in the dirt. You just got a full-blown butt whooping from Peter. 
who's not even a soldier. He's a fisherman. I mean, you probably feel like a dork. And all of a sudden, the guy you came to drag away in chains and ropes inevitably be crucified to his death, picks your ear back up and puts it on your head. Wow. I'm not sure if that's like way too anticlimactic, but I know, I know that's where I would have been living. He loved and chose an apostle, a man he knew would betray him. Jesus chose Judas of Iscariot. Okay, the apostles did not choose Christ. Christ chose them. He said clear as day, you didn't choose me, I chose you. How about that for a high moral ethic? He never spoke in his own defense, even against the false accusations of lying men. Fulfilling prophecy as a sheep is silent before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. He died for his very enemies. He forgave his crucifiers from the cross. Can you imagine that? Those amazing and gracious words that we read. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's move on to our second point, the creedal statements. Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and the third day he rose again from the dead. I ask people flat out, what part of the Creed is heretical? No part of the Creed is heretical. That creed is as orthodox as it gets in a society who basically could not afford a copy of any books. That's why the creeds were constructed in a way that they were easy to memorize. That way you could pass them around. The Nicene Creed, which comes slightly later, over 100 years after the Apostles' Creed, is the Nicene Creed of 8325. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. I tell people there's about 11 amazing doctrines embedded In the Nicene Creed, every one of them biblical to the core, to the core. And last but certainly not least, another 120 years in the future, the Chalcedonian Creed of AD 451. Following then the Holy Fathers, we unite in teaching all men to confess one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This self-same one is Perfect both in deity and in humanness. He is of the same reality as God as far as his deity is concerned and of the same reality as ourselves far as his humanness is concerned. Like us in all aspects or respects, sin only accepted, no sin nature. For us and on our behalf of our salvation, this self-same one was born of Mary the Virgin 
who is God-bearer in respect of his humanness. You see, for the first 450 years of early Christianity, all of the scholars of the church knew exactly what we're still studying some 1,500 years later. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Remember the Nicene Creed said? God of God, light of light, begotten and not made. And Jesus forever wed himself to humanity. Do you know the gravity of that doctrine? We don't talk about it a lot, but we're gonna because we're doing Christ's humanity in a couple weeks. But in order to save us from ourselves, Jesus forever wed his deity to humanity in the person of Christ. Flip your Bible open to Revelation 19 and read for yourself how Jesus returns to the earth physically on a white horse. Brothers and sisters, when I tell you that one day we will see Jesus Christ face to face, I mean the same way we embrace and hug when gradient's over. Now, I don't know if that excites you, but that blows my teeny tiny mind over and over again when I even think on it for a second but it's still the truth of the incarnation forever. Jesus forever wed his deity to humanity in the person of Christ for us. And that's why we can say love walked among us in an unparalleled way. So that takes care of the biblical basis, the creedal statements. Now my favorite, let's look at the doctrinal importance. You see, sinners cannot save us from sin. Because I know what everyone says, right? Everyone goes with the old adage, but I'm a good person. Yeah, like, like, slay me, man. Like, how good? Are you like Mr. Rogers good? Like, like, better than that? Like, what does that mean? None are good, no, not one. Go read Romans 3. He was tempted in all points as we were yet without sin. That's what Hebrews 4.15 tells us about the high priest we have in Jesus Christ. That means that we can go to Christ with all of our troubles and woes. That's why 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 are so important. Humble yourself by casting your cares on Christ because he cares for you. And we lie to ourselves, brothers and sisters, when we say, Jesus won't understand. Seriously? The same man who ate bread at Jesus' table for three years is the same man who sold him out for the equivalent of about 4,000 American dollars by today's standard. Would you sell out your best friend for $4,000? If you would, we should talk later. You may have a love of money problem going on. Because I'm going to tell you right now, as an adult and a homeowner, four grand is not a lot of scratch. It, it doesn't go far. It only sounds like a lot until like every bill under the sun comes in at once, which happens consistently. No. Jesus, our great high priest, knows everything. He knows how to be absolutely lied to, betrayed. I'm talking about by friends, by friends. Judas was supposed to be his friend, his student. So Jesus knows our hurt and our anguish. Brothers and sisters, please, I know so many Christians who walk around and they suffer in silence and I don't know why they do it. Why? 
why do you do it? Let go and let God. It sounds so cliche and corny in a church, but I'm going to have to tell you, it's still the truth. Release and let go of your hurt and cast it onto Christ. Not only are his shoulders big enough to take it, he loves you and he will take it. God cannot accept an imperfect sacrifice. This is another reason to accept Jesus' sinlessness. He himself is the propitiation. That's a very fancy Greek word that means satisfaction for our sins. 1 John 2.2 with a reference to Exodus 12.5. You can't bring a blemished sacrifice to a holy, awesome God. He doesn't accept it. That's why there's no sacrifice under heaven other than the precious, sinless blood of Jesus that atones. A propitiation in the pagan world was a sacrifice that appeased the gods. You've all seen it, right? The earth, the earth is trembling. The volcano is stirring. Let's find a virgin in the village and throw her in. Maybe the volcano will stop. We can try and satisfy the angry volcano gods. Uh, that didn't work. It wasn't a good sacrifice. There's been no rain. Let's bring a sacrifice. Appease the angers of, you know, of, of the sky gods. They can send us rain again. The whole idea here is that there is true anger against sin. And I can tell you that. It's not going to make you feel good. But that's the honest thing and his truth. God is angry at sin. Flat out. Matter of fact, I'll one-up you. Go to the Psalms and research. God hates sinners. I know you've probably heard the stupid cliche, oh, you gotta love, love the sinner and hate the sin. Welcome to Hinduism if you didn't know that. Mahatma Gandhi said that, not Jesus Christ. I don't know if that blows your brains out or not, but I'm telling you, that's the stupidest thing smart people say on a regular basis. And smart people say stupid stuff all the time, and stupid people every now and then say something intelligent. Welcome to the crazy world we live in. It's just how it goes. God hates sinners. Freaks you right out, right? Like, whoa, what? Rest assured, God also loves sinners. To which everyone's amazement, you think, it's a total contradiction. How can that be? It's not contradictory at all. The opposite, just so you know, the opposite of love is not hate can't stand when people say it. It's so completely and absolutely bonkers and illogical. The opposite of love is indifference. For love, it's the most basic definition, biblically speaking, is to be wholly given over to the good of another. If I love you, I look out for you. If I love you, I provide for you. If I love you and I see you doing something stupid, I jump in and I try to stop you from the dumb action. That's love. It's the truth of the matter. America's modern 2020 definition, if you love me, you'll support me, is anti-biblical. It's stupid, as a matter of fact. I reject it entirely. I can't put up with it for half a second. That's not love. That itself could be attributed to hatred. You hate someone, let them go their way and destroy themselves. That is not love. That's not love. It's also not indifference. Because indifference says, who cares? Love is to be wholly given over. Well, then what is indifference? To not at all give a rip and not be given over at all. Two different emotions. That's the opposite 
Hate is an entirely different, entirely different emotion altogether. Why can God hate sinners and God love sinners? I'll give you the worst analogy I can ever give you because someone's always bothered by this and it's like an th- attack in their mind. And I'm just gonna help you out for a second. If I went home, if I went home and found my wife brutally murdered, laying on the kitchen floor, and there was a note next to her body, and it said, Father, killed mom, I hate you, and when we meet, I will kill you. Sincerely, Joshua David Falzerano, my son, my real life, my real life son, not a fake analogy. Let's make it real. Real quick, does anyone think I hate my son? You better believe as the sky is blue, as the ocean is salty. I hate my son for who he is and what he has become and what he has done. There is no separation. Don't tell me, oh, love the sinner, hate the sin. I hate him entirely. And I want you to know I'm probably gonna kill him. And that's as real as it gets. The next time we meet would be our last meeting. And now I'll tell you this much, I could never stop loving my son, no matter what he does. Burn down the house, crash the car, kill the one who brought him life, his own mother. I would never, ever be capable of not loving my son because he bears my image. And that's why God can both love sinners and hate sinners at the exact same time. Why does he love us so? He is our creator. He can never stop loving us. Why does he hate sinners? Because of the rebellion. Because of the sin. That's why. Because what we have become. And yet he is so willing, so willing by faith alone to forgive us and cleanse us and bring us home. That's why we say God's grace is so amazing. And it's easy on one hand to comprehend and absolutely mind-boggling on another level. It's amazing. But remember that whole time, the sacrifice which appeased God's anger and wrath towards sin had to be holy, blameless, and perfect. You see, our debt cannot be paid by just another debtor. It can't be. Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us unto God. 1 Peter 3, 18, revisited. Someone else who owes the bank can't pay your loan off either because they too are a debtor. You have to have someone with sparkling credit. One drowning person cannot rescue anyone. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if Robbie and I go fishing? We're like, hey, man, let's go deep sea fishing. And the two knuckleheads we are don't realize that boats have bilge pumps. And we don't, we don't plug it in. And we just sink that thing. And he looks at me and goes, bro, I can't swim. And I go, bro, I can't swim. 
We can hold each other and comfort each other for the 18 seconds it takes to drown in the ocean or be eaten by a shark or who the heck knows what else would happen. I got a pretty dark mind. I could think of a lot of horrible ways to die at sea. But there is no way in the world that two guys who don't know how to swim could ever save each other. It can't be done logically. One drowning man will never ever save another drowning man. Ergo, one man with a sin nature is never ever gonna propitiate and provide atoning sacrifice for a bunch of other sinners. For the son of man has come to seek and to save which was lost. Luke 19, 10. You see, Jesus is able to save us because he has no sin nature. He is pure and holy and righteous. He is perfect man. And so he can stretch down to man. Follow me? He is also God of God and light of light. And so he can not only stretch out to fallen man, but he can reach back to almighty father God. Jesus stands in the gap because he's the only one who can. This is why the reformers in the 15th century called him the God man. Because that's the truth. He's 100% God and he's 100% man. That's a doctrine that lives in the clouds, but it should live in your head too. Conclusion, a sinful savior cannot save sinners. Ever. A sinless savior can save sinners. So let's move on. We did biblical, creedal, doctrinal, and I wanna add moral. What's the moral importance of this doctrine? You see, just as Jesus is perfect, he is now for us a perfect moral example for us. Another big doctrine of Martin Luther and the reformers was one called Christos Exemplar, which sounds in English just like it sounds in Latin. Christ, who is the perfect example. And he is. Follow me just as I follow Christ, is what Paul said. Paul didn't say, follow me because that would be ridiculous. That would be a bunch of saved sinners following another saved sinner. No, Paul said, any which way you see me following Christ, that can be emulated in me. And I know a lot of people who really muck that up bad. Follow it clearly. What Paul is telling us is any which way you see me follow Christ, those are the things where you should follow me. Number two, Christ has suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Peter tells us clear as day in 1 Peter 1.21 that Jesus has left us an example to walk. He is, he has. Paul in Philippians 3.14 said, I press towards the goal for the prize in Christ Jesus. How do we win? How do we get ahead? It's only by being in Christ If you don't know who you are and you struggle with identity, I need to tell you right now, until you find who you are in Christ Jesus, you will struggle with identity for the next 10,000 lifetimes. You're never ever gonna understand really who you are until you understand who you are in Christ, who he's made you, who he molded you specifically to be. And it's so important for you guys to understand that at this point in your life. Notice this much. I want you guys to hear me ever so clearly for one bunny trail. Although we've had like five. Just, just put up with one more from the old man tonight. 
You need to realize if you don't love what you're doing right now or love what you're studying right now, take it to someone who has five degrees. Pick a new major and do something else. If you truly do what you were designed to do by the creator, if you do something that you love, you will never work hard a day in your life. You go to work every day. It'll be a joy. It'll be an honor. It'll be a blessing. You'll be fulfilled and you'll think, this is what I was made to do. If you go do something to make money and you hate it, you're going to hate life. Work is not a curse. I can't believe how many people get that doctrine just completely bonkers. Before the fall in the garden, what was Adam doing? Oldest Oldest profession on the planet. He was a farmer. Isn't farming work? Oh, yeah, it is. Planting and reaping and sowing and pruning and doing all the things, picking all the fruit, that's called the harvest. Adam was working before the fall. Thorns and thistles were added after, after sin. That's the curse. Now you're going to eat bread by the sweat of your brow. Now you're going to have to work really hard. The curse came in afterwards. Work has never been a curse, ever. So discover who you are and what God meant for you to be, who he molded and sculpted you. In Jeremiah, it says so preciously that he knew Jeremiah while he was still in his mother's womb. Brothers and sisters, we have a God who is outside of time. He inhabits eternity. He knows everything about you more than you could ever know about yourself. And he knows exactly who he wants you to be, important in him, in him. The perfect example to be followed, ergo, must be perfect. There's nothing flawed in Jesus. Therefore, Christ must be the perfect one. So we've covered four of our five, biblical, creedal, doctrinal, moral, And then, of course, let's answer a couple quick objections because there are people in this world who have all kinds of horrific things to say about Jesus Christ. Let's look at a few. This is one I hear a lot, and I've answered at least half a dozen times on Bridge Bible Talk while filling in for Pastor Lloyd. People will say, well, if you talk about hell, there's something wrong with you. Anyone who threatens people with eternal hell lacks proper kindness. Oh, Jesus did this. If you go throughout the Gospels and count it up, let me tell you right now, I'll save you the academic journey. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. So what do you think that means? It means that all of the warnings Jesus gave are concrete. How do we respond to people who say Jesus is unkind? We say, if there is a hell, anyone who does not warn people about it, they lack proper kindness. That is like a doctor who diagnoses you with four-stage pancreatic cancer, gives you a red lollipop, taps you on the tushy, says, go home, you're fine. Is the worst doctor who's ever practiced medicine ever. You could sue that guy. Do you feel good because he made you feel good? I felt so good. Yeah, but you were dying. The best thing a doctor can do is tell you that you're sick. If you're sick, 
if you need medical treatment, if you need a cure, then the best thing doctors can do is really tell you you're sick. It doesn't make anyone feel good to hear that. Hey, how'd it go with the oncologist? That was awesome. I felt so good. He told me I have four-stage pancreatic cancer. Said no one ever. However, people will say, yeah, but he told me that with a lot of treatment, I have good odds because he's a good doctor. Hell is a real place. Jesus did the kindest thing on the planet by telling people about it. Jesus said, there is a hell. And as God, he ought to know better than anyone else. Hence, Jesus Christ was eminently, eminently kind to warn people of it. If you were driving down a road at 55 miles an hour and you found a bridge over a canyon out and there was no warning whatsoever, wouldn't it be the kindest thing for you to do to take your car, drive it across the bridge to block people from coming in that direction and then stand a mile out and try to flag every car down and say, turn around, turn around, turn around. If you're not paying attention, you'll drive right into a 300-foot cliff. The bridge is out. No one's come out yet. I don't know if the township knows about it, but the bridge is out. And I don't want to see you crash your car. I don't want to see you die. Telling people about hell is part of the good news. You've got to tell them the horrific thing first before the gracious free offer of Jesus Christ truly makes any sense. And we forget that sometimes, don't we? We forget it. We, we love what I call the Nestle Toll House gospel in America. Does anyone know that, Nestle Toll House? Tube of cookies comes out. You can eat them raw. They're banging. You can cook them. They get better. But every time you watch that stupid commercial, yeah, you ever, you ever watch the commercial? They CGI'd that way back in the 90s because the mom breaks the cookie and the, the chocolate chip that melted is like seven and a half feet long. You ever see? She's like, cookies, Bobby. What? So ooey and gooey. You know, everyone in here right now is like, shut up, Jay. I want a cookie so bad and there are none here. But we love that. It's the Nestle Toll House gospel. You know what it is? It's when you tell people, come to Jesus because he loves you so much. And that's a perfect plan for your life. And things are going to get so much better when you just come. That's the worst gospel ever, ever, ever preached because it's a lie. You come to Christ, you get a bullseye on your back. Every demon on the planet's chucking stuff your way. Think about it this way. Think about if you got onto a plane, right? And you sat down and you had a smooth takeoff and you hit a little turbulence and you're like, whoa, what the, what's going on here? And the stewardess comes over and she comes over with a 85 pound parachute. And she goes, well, Mr. Falderano, the, just want to let you know that the pilot said, everything's okay. But if you wear this parachute, you're going to feel secure about yourself and you're going to feel good. And I'm like, I want to feel good. I want to feel secure. So I put on the 85-pound parachute, and now my face is mushed into the seat in front of me, right? And everyone's walking around like, look at that dork. Doesn't he know it's safer to, you know, fly a plane than drive a car to work? What an idiot. People are throwing peanuts at me, calling me stupid, calling me nerd. And I'm like, this sucks. I'm taking this parachute off. I take it off, and I kick it under the next seat. That's the problem when you give someone the, the Nestle Toll House gospel. 
We tell them Jesus makes everything better. They kick it off. They're like, I, I'm, I'm out. Life, life did not become a bowl of cherries. I was promised bowl of cherries. I got a bowl of mushrooms. Not what I wanted, but thanks. Ready? Let me give you scenario number two, because this one's way better. You have a fairly smooth takeoff, experience lots and lots of turbulence. Look out the window and see what appears to be smoke coming on one side of the plane. The stewardess comes over, sweat is beating off of her head. She throws a parachute into your lap and says, engine one is down, engine two is overheating, and the pilot said, there's no way in God's green earth we're landing safely with two working engines. We're all jumping off this plane, and the only thing that will save you is this parachute. That's the real gospel. Brothers and sisters, innately we are in a plane. Engine one is gone, two smoking, three's getting hot, and this sucker's going down. And if you don't have Christ, you're not going to make it. That's the gospel that needs to be shared. Not the one that makes people feel good. The one that's reality. Others object from vindictive natures. They say anyone who pronounces woes on his enemy is vindictive. Jesus did this in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe, oh, anyone who could do that couldn't be perfect. How do we respond? Denouncing evil is not vindictive. Otherwise, all law enforcement agents on the planet would be vindictive uh, for a living. That's just calling facts, facts. Anyone who does not condemn evil and hypocrisy, as Jesus did, is now what we would call morally flawed. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. The justice of God is a, do- is a doctrine you want. Otherwise, you have an unjust God. And how do you know that he isn't going to be partial to one and impartial to another? That's an unjust judge. You want a just judge who, by the way, has already provided the solution in his only begotten son. Jesus, first of all, was not vindictive. Not once. Not anywhere. He taught us to love our enemies. In Matthew 5, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and do good to them. Love those who persecute you. That, that's vindictive? That's not vindictive. He forgave the cru- those, again, who crucified him on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, he did fashion a cord of whips and drive people out of the temple, but it's because they were cheating the people and turning his father's house, which was a house of prayer for all the nations, into a den of thieves. You know what? That wasn't even vindictive. That's called righteous indignation. And human beings can do the same thing. When you see something brutally unrighteous and you become angry about it, yet you don't go down and do something monstrously, demonstrably sinful, that's righteous indignation. I'm fine with that. There are all kinds of horrible, undignified things that we as humans do to other people. Those things should make you angry. Just don't be vindictive about it. And last but certainly not least, my favorite one. The objection from drowning pigs. 
People say, I read about it in Matthew 8.30. Jesus drowned some pigs unnecessarily. And anyone who drowns little pigs, as Jesus did, is unkind. Man, is this one off. Number one, I tell people, y'all might want to go back and, and open up the Bible. I got five reasons I think that's bunk. Five. You notice I didn't give you five before. This one really, you know, really gets me. Number one, Jesus didn't drown the pigs. He simply cast the demons out of a man into a herd of pigs. So he didn't do that. Number two, Jesus was more interested in saving people than pigs. We live in a society today that's more interested, I think, sometimes in saving pigs than people. Not Jesus. He's more interested in people than pigs. Number three, hypothetically, I'll tell you right now, as the creator of all, he owns all things and has the right to take their life if he wanted to. The God we worship is the God who owns cattle on a thousand hills, brothers and sisters. He made all things. He created all things. He's sovereign. He controls all things. Job knew this well. When all things were taken from him, he dropped to his knees and said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a right attitude in horrible times. Number four, one that most people really miss. It is a judgment against those in Israel in the Gadarian, that region there in the upper Galilee, for raising unclean animals. Real quick, how big are Jews on swine? Not so good, not so clean. And so even through an act of demonic rebellion, there is now, because read the story, the people who owned, who owned those pigs ran off and told what happened in the nearby village. It's a judgment against them for raising unclean animals. They should have been raising goats and sheep, Levitically clean animals, animals that could be eaten, animals that could be sacrificed for sin. Pigs were good for nothing in Israel. Go read the prodigal son for some context. And number five, the demons begged Jesus. Begged is the word. In Matthew 8, 32, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now look, Jesus knew what they were going to do. But still, you can't go back and say, Jesus unnecessarily drowned pigs, ergo he's not perfect, sinless, and pure. It's just not true. It doesn't hold water. So what? Why does it matter? Why does all this, why have you spent so much time about this? It matters a lot. Because Jesus' sinlessness proves his messiahship. It is one of the most important doctrines in the Christian church, one we do not take enough time to dig into because it's Jesus alone who can save us. It's often been said many times, the path to hell is paved with nothing but good intentions. And that's why it's all all by faith through grace. Only Jesus can save us, and he said he would. 
seeing Jesus' sinlessness can give us the great confidence that we may sometimes lack. Anyone here in this room ever get discouraged and bent out of shape with life and how things are going? Yeah, me too. But this is one of these things. This is why Christ is our solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand, but we stand on Christ the solid rock. That's why Jesus said that the man who builds his house on the rock, that's the foundation to build upon. Three verses, I want to tie this up. John 14, verses 15 through 21, Jesus in meeting with his disciples said, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus could not be any clearer about his great love for his church. Amen? He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will not leave us as orphans. What was Jesus planning on doing? Even though the disciples said they knew what was going on, they still didn't really get what was going on. Jesus was about to be taken from them and crucified. And what did they need? They needed great confidence in this moment, which is what he gave them. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, Paul tells the Christians gathered there in Corinth, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. What is Paul giving them? Facts. Facts. And just like Joe Friday, more facts. That reference is way too old for all of you. But how did Christ die? In accordance with the scriptures. And he was buried and rose again according to the what? The scriptures independently verifiable. Go home and read your Old Testaments is what Paul was saying. These things all had to happen. They're in accordance with revelation, which is knowledge given by way of God that you would never get on your own. Revelatory knowledge is that which is bequeathed and given to you. The veil's taken away, the blinders are gone, and God gives it to you. Here it is in accordance with everything God said. And very importantly, tying up with verse 20 through 26. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by Adam also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 
but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. See, in accordance with the Jewish festival of first fruits, also known as Pentecost, it was a time where the Jewish people would take the first batch of barley that came up. If you know that, that's the first that comes up. The first of all the spring fruits is barley. It's the cheap man's wheat. Wheat is tastier and more expensive. Barley came up first. Go read the book of Ruth. That took place during the barley harvest. Very important. Now we know when the book of Ruth took place, during the Feast of Pentecost. But what the Jews did was amazing. Check this. They didn't start immediately drying out barley and selling barley and doing everything else. They took the first barley that came up, harvested it, bound it in sheaves, took it to the tabernacle, and burned it as a sacrifice before Yahweh. Is that amazing? It's a principle we, ha- we, we call tithing. You give God the first, not the last tenth. You give God the first. It's called the law of first fruits because if Israel was faithful to do this, God would bring them bountiful harvest year after year, season after season because they were guaranteed that by the Lord. For their faithfulness in bringing the first, God says, I'll bring you bountiful harvest. And Paul knew that. And what Paul is saying is our guarantee of resurrection is because Christ, ignore that thing, is because Christ was raised. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. That's the guarantee. Because Christ is raised, you too shall be resurrected at end of days. Because he is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. He went first. And because of Christ's faithfulness to the Father, Every one of us has a guarantee. If you're in Christ, you're secure. If you're in Christ, you will one day spend forevermore face to face with Jesus Christ. So let's pray and then break into small groups and just anything we want to talk about tonight in small groups pertaining to Jesus' holiness, his sinless nature, how that affects our walk, evangelism. All of these points are for us to mill over in our hearts and minds and talk about together. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the guarantee that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. And we will one day be raised immortal, No longer death and decay shall have anything over us. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Where is thy victory? Is our motto, Father. Sin and death have nothing on us because of Christ's righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that we're secure in you and that your word comfort us. Lord, I pray that when we're discouraged and downcast, 
we would remember the great position we have in Christ, Messiah, our King. Bless us tonight, Father, in our time in small groups, we ask in Jesus' matchless name. And all of God's family said, amen.